Hello everyone. This is a purely audio podcast today and hopefully the audio quality is good. What I'm learning very quickly is that the audio takes only about a quarter of the time to produce as compared to the audio and the video together. I'm not sure exactly how much the video adds to be honest. With episodes involving say mathematics then sometimes I think the visual element can help but more generally I don't know. It's something I'm figuring out. But for now, for this episode, as you will have noticed from the title, it's about free will. I've gone through phases as most anyone interested in philosophy will have with free will. I started off thinking it was real and then I was convinced for a time that I was wrong about that and I changed my mind. Back to what I think now, which is that it is indeed a real thing. For a long time I was a proponent of the idea, which is pretty much mainstream now, that determinism rules out free will. But now I think I understand reductionism better. So most scientists, let's take uh, Sam Harris who wrote a wonderful book on the topic, um, they argue that we do not have free will because we cannot possibly be aware of all the things that come to bear on affecting our conscious decisions. We did not choose our choices or what choices are before us. I think that line of argument is a red herring. The crucial point is, do we choose our choices? If we do not choose, then what does? If it's not us, it must be something else doing the choosing. Now, I think the self is real, of course. I think we are universal explainers. Sam denies the actuality of the self, that on introspection the self disappears. Now, I think that, the idea that when you are in a contemplative state, that when you turn your focus of attention onto yourself, the claim that the self then disappears, I think that itself is the illusion. Yes, of course, when one quietens their mind and tries to observe one's own subjectivity, one finds nothing. But this is just to say that when the mind isn't working, one cannot observe the mind thinking. There's no great mystery here. I think that when we're looking at our own subjectivity and finding that we cannot find ourselves, it's rather like the claim that when you look at the stars at night, you do not see nuclear fusion going on. You do not observe the actual thing that you're trying to understand. So merely not being able to observe something is no refutation of its existence. Just as almost everything of interest in science is very difficult to observe. If you merely look at your hand, you cannot, via observation alone, tell that it's made of atoms and that those atoms are made up of smaller particles still. Observation alone doesn't get you there. It's not the case in science. It's not the case in third-person science. So why it should be the case in a first-person science of subjectivity, I don't know. But I'm not willing to change the rules. I think that in order to try and understand what the self is and what free will is, we don't merely observe. We need to explain, and some observations will become crucial in distinguishing between different ideas about what the self is. So for me, it's no great mystery for me to say that consciousness on the one hand and the contents of consciousness on the other are quite different things. Indeed they are. And what are we? Well, we, as universal explainers, when we find we're not explaining anything, there's not much going on in consciousness. But when we try explaining things, which is to say when we're thinking, there are special kinds of content in our consciousness. I do think we have responsibility for directing the contents of our consciousness. 
We cannot take full responsibility. We can't take full responsibility for anything, but we can take some responsibility. And that amount that we can take responsibility for, that's where free will becomes salient. But let me now turn to some other remarks about free will to try and convince you, if you don't agree that free will exists, that those who do deny its existence have indeed missed something crucial. Now, to make this case, I'm going to borrow an argument from David Deutsch in The Fabric of Reality. And it's about the reality of emergent phenomena and their causal effects in the real world. Now, the reason I'm borrowing this argument from The Fabric of Reality is in order to respond to what I think is the prevailing view in physics and neuroscience about the absence of free will. Sam Harris wrote a book called Free Will, and I think it's the best short account of this position. So the argument goes this way. Again, full credit to The Fabric of Reality and David Deutsch for this argument. So there is a statue sitting in Parliament Square in London. It's of the British Prime Minister during World War II, Winston Churchill. That statue is made of bronze. And at the tip of the nose of that statue is an atom of copper. Now let's ask the question, why is that copper atom there? Here's one reason. Because the copper atom next to it bumped it some decades ago, and it bumped it because the copper atom next to that bumped it, all in accordance with the laws of physics. Indeed, that copper atom is there because, at the beginning of the universe, atoms were created, collided and moved around in just such a way that today, the copper atom of interest at the tip of Winston Churchill's nose is where it is. This is to say, the copper atom was determined to be there, following the initial conditions at the Big Bang and the laws of physics that exist in our universe. So now, returning to our question, why is that copper atom there? Do you understand why it's there? Well, in a sense you do, but it's a very strange form of understanding. And that vacuous argument about initial conditions in the Big Bang could be used to explain why anything, anywhere, anytime happens. But here's another story which explains why it's there. World War II was a huge historical event where a bunch of terrible people in Germany with terrible ideas, led by a dictator called Hitler, attempted to take away many human rights and freedoms we enjoy today from people all across Europe, especially the Jewish people. One of the great leaders of the Allies who fought against the Germans and Hitler was Winston Churchill. He led British forces to victory over Hitler, and it is customary in our culture to create statues of great leaders out of bronze and put them in public places. Bronze contains copper, and so that is why the statue is there, and therefore why the atom at the end of the statue's nose is a copper one. Now, which of these accounts actually explains why? In the first account, which could in fact be used every time for any process whatsoever, for example, why copper atoms are in coins, or why copper atoms are in your bloodstream, or indeed why a tree grows as it does, or a star explodes, or indeed why a person chooses to become a doctor and not an engineer, that first account, the deterministic account, the account that says what's going on in the universe is simply atoms in the void obeying physical laws, can always be applied to any event in physical reality. However, in the second case, when we provide an answer to the why question, we use words like statue and history and culture and speak about dictators and their actions. Are these things less real than atoms? I'll submit to you that no, they're not. They are patterns of atoms or even abstract things, but they are important in the causal chain of events. 
even though they are not mentioned by laws of particle physics or even form a part of the contents of chemistry. Indeed, to remove these higher-order emergent things from our account is to create a less accurate, less complete explanation of why the atom is where it is. Emergent complexity, that is to say stuff that is more complex than an atom, but still very much real, like a statue or a person, really is important for our account. So let's now consider free will. Now, David uses that argument in The Fabric of Reality, not specifically to talk about free will. He's talking about emergence more broadly. But I want to apply this very argument to free will. Why is it that we choose one thing rather than another? One account is this. The electron or potassium ion or whatever goes left rather than right down some ion channel in a neuron and the neuron fires. And that neuron might not have fired if the electron or ion had not gone down that channel. And so therefore we end up choosing one thing rather than another. We choose tea rather than coffee. That argument can always be made, no matter what. And it provides a purely predictive account of what is happening. It's completely vacuous, and though it might be intractable, in principle, it could provide the full chain of events from the movement of electrons to the movement of a teacup in the hand of a person. But at no point would we ever answer the question, why tea and not coffee? Except by recourse to, well, that's just what the laws of physics or neuroscience say. That's just where the potassium ion happened to go down the channel and therefore the neuron fired. And that's why the person chose coffee rather than tea. But it doesn't give us any indication of the true underlying reasons which would have to be based upon their motivations. For example... Here's the following account of why I might choose tea rather than coffee. The account goes like this. I generally prefer tea. There are times when I have coffee, but I might have already had two coffees today. I'm not a person who likes to drink too much caffeine, and I tend to think for a moment pretty carefully about whether I want the anxiety and the jitteriness that comes with having a full three coffees in one morning. So I choose to have tea. I deliberate and choose. And this process has a name. I choose what I do because I am free to do so and deliberate and come to a conclusion. And we call this process the exercise of free will. It's an emergent phenomena. It's rather like culture. When we go to explain why the copper atom is at the tip of Winston Churchill's nose, the tip of the statue of Winston Churchill, we rely upon a historical story, an account in terms of these abstract ideas. It doesn't violate the idea that physics indeed determined why it is that the copper atom ended up at the tip of the nose of the statue of Winston Churchill, where it did. It is completely compatible with the idea that there was also this thing called World War II. So, in the case of me choosing tea rather than coffee, I'm not discounting the fact that everything was determined, just as it was with the copper atoms. We cannot get away from the laws of physics. They apply to everything all the time. That's what universal means. They govern, for example, the behaviour of nuclear blasts, but they cannot explain why it is that Hiroshima, and not Nagasaki, was bombed first at the end of World War II. It is poorly understood that determinism can actually work top-down. The copper atom is there because people put it there, and they put it there because they made the statue out of bronze, and they did that to commemorate Winston Churchill. This high-level stuff about statues and history and people determined where the atom went and not vice versa. Neuroscientists and physicists seem particularly poorly placed to appreciate this. Now, I'm not a physicist, 
but I have a degree in physics and I know that they are very much fixated on bottom-up causation. And emergence is typically not a well-understood phenomena, not by many physicists. We can't even do the turbulent flow of fluids. So forget about trying to explain anything at a higher order of complexity for now. And so, with a choice about tea or coffee, the ions travel down this channel and not that one, and this neuron fired and not that one, because I deliberated about coffee versus tea, and considering stuff important to me, made the free choice. And that is why the neurons that fired did, and that is why the particles went where they did inside of my brain. If someone genuinely asks me, why tea? Why not coffee? To answer with, well, a set of neurons fired in my head and forced me to choose tea and not coffee would be a ridiculous answer. The real answer is because I wanted tea, because I've already had two cups of coffee today, and I could give even more reasons, and all of those reasons are an account of me exercising my free will. I am part of the causal chain. I made real choices. No one else is making the choice. Nothing else is making the choice. I am. This is pretty uncontroversial, and even Sam Harris agrees that choices are real. He just wants to deny that we have the free will to make them. But because I think this entire sequence of what's going on, the fact that I'm the one making the choices, the choices exist, it's me as part of the causal chain that is doing X rather than Y, I just think it's very convenient to give all of this a straightforward name, free will. The exercise of free, free meaning no one is coercing me, no one is forcing me, will, by which I mean my personal preferences, I'm exercising my free will, I'm exercising a non-coercive way of enacting my personal preferences. What am I? A person. What's a person? A person's a mind, an abstract thing, a set of ideas, but more than this, a person is also a kind of process for producing new ideas. We use the term universal explainer, which is the solution to the what is a person question found by David Deutsch and articulated in the beginning of infinity. And of course, I refer everyone to that book. Simply look up um, person, perhaps, in the index. Anyways, whatever the case, abstract things we must recognize can have physical causes in the world. We've seen that through my podcast series when I refer to the reality of abstractions following David's chapter in the beginning of infinity all about that. And I think that's one of the fundamental misconceptions that people who deny the reality of free will are missing. They're not only denying simply free will, they're denying the whole class of abstract reality to a large extent. They think that physical things can only cause other physical things, but they're wrong about that. Abstract things can have physical effects in the world. Abstract things can have physical effects in the world. It's worth repeating. There are all sorts of ways in which this happens. Culture is an abstract thing. It has physical effects in the world. People are abstract things. They have physical effects in the world. Our mind, our ideas, ideas very much so, are abstract things that have physical effects in the world. Indeed, Sam knows this as well as anyone because he thinks that belief, a form of idea, is a lever which causes behavior, and behavior is a physical thing. So he understands that ideas can have physical effects in the world. Well, all we're saying here with free will is that there's an abstract thing, namely a kind of creative software, which is the mind running on the human brain, that, is, that we refer to as the universal explainer, that has physical effects in the world. And the universal explainer, being a creative thing, being a genuinely creative thing, does things 
that are unpredictable. Unpredictable, inherently unpredictable. Why inherently unpredictable? Because that's what creativity is. Creativity, to be genuine, cannot be predicted beforehand. The contents of whatever your ideas are going to be cannot be predicted beforehand if you are a genuine, universal explainer. Because a law of epistemology, if you like, is that we cannot predict the contents of any theory successor. And just about every idea you have constitutes some kind of theory about what to do next. Okay, so returning to our statue, just consider how the abstract idea, purely an abstract idea, that Hitler is evil and needs to be stopped. Well, it had the very real effect of bombs being dropped by the Allies under instruction from Churchill onto Berlin. All those abstract things cause real-world physical effects. And so it is with free will. It's an abstract idea. And this idea that you are free to choose means you will choose one thing over another. We don't need to talk about atoms and ions, nerves or neurons, or even brains at all. Just abstract minds. And the idea that you are free to choose. That's all that free will ever needs to mean. Now let me also grapple at this moment with the strongest form of the deterministic argument that I've heard. Because until I reached university, I never thought about the question of free will much. But had I been asked, I would have responded with the naive conception of free will that most people have, that they are the author of their thoughts. Now, pressed, most people, I think, might well respond that they are the ultimate author of their thoughts and behaviour. This naive conception has a name. It's called libertarian free will. It somehow posits that a person has some ultimate, which is to say outside the normal chain of events, causal power over what their next choice will be. But of course, this is an appeal to the supernatural. They cannot be causes that are outside of what the laws of physics mandate, which is to say what happens, happens according to the laws of physics. So that's that. When I went to university for reasons that had nothing whatever to do with university, uh, my best friend, still my best friend, hello Scott, um, convinced me that free will must be ruled out by determinism and also indeterminism. Whatever form the laws of physics were, they were what compelled signals in the brain to be what they were. It would not matter if the laws mandated determinism, in which case what you were about to do next was fixed by the initial conditions of the universe and the laws of physics, or if they permitted indeterminism, in which case what you did next was, again, not controlled by you, but rather something akin to the role of a truly fair dice. There seemed to be only two possibilities. If you did not want to endorse some other kind of supernatural explanation, either what you did was determined by prior events in your brain of which you were unaware, so the electron takes this path rather than that path in the brain and you choose X rather than Y because of that, or what you did was not determined, in which case it was random, and so therefore you also didn't choose it. If you think there is some third thing, like that you author your thoughts and nothing determines them, then you have to ask why those thoughts and not some other. There must be some reason why you think what you think. If not, then you are back to square one with no reason determines what you do, in which case it's randomness determines what happens next. If there is no reason what you choose to do is what you choose to do, then you might as well be inclined to sing karaoke during the next funeral you attend as much as meditate in respectful silence. There are clearly reasons why we do what we do. It took me a long time to get past this sticking point. It's a sticking point Sam Harrison, I think, Anyone else who thinks that determinism rules out free will is stuck at. Now, Sam also adds that subjectively, there is no feeling of free will. Now, I will simply have to differ with him there. 
Yes, indeed, I agree. Thoughts seem to arise unbidden, as if from the void into our minds. We, as the conscious subject of our experience, do not alter those thoughts. But this is an exceedingly narrow conception of what a person is. I do not think it is all clear, even when divesting yourself of your own personhood during a reflective moment, that this is all there is to being a person. Indeed, the sense of self that is lost during those moments of epiphany is just that. The loss of personhood, not a glimpse into the true nature of self. Why is that feeling that Sam and I, and so many others have in those moments, able to provide some guarantee of ultimate truth into the ontological reality of what the actual nature of self is? I think such a feeling is no more reliable than third-person objective arguments, indeed less so, and in this case, rarely, I'm with Wittgenstein, whereof one cannot speak, thereof we must remain silent. The subjective experience of what it is to feel thoughts arise and pass away, and to allow the thought that I am a self dissolve away so that pure consciousness remains is not very instructive of what it means when carefully contemplating what to do next when other axons are firing, so to speak? Sure, when attempting as hard as possible, by quietening the mind as much as possible, not to judge, reflect, or decide, you are, as hard as possible, not trying to be moved by your free will. It should be no surprise, then, that when you choose, notice the irony, not to use your free will, you will find subjectively that you don't have any. I'll say that again. If you're trying not to use your free will, by meditating and looking inwards, then choosing not to use your free will and trying to observe that you have it seems to be a strict contradiction. Of course you won't feel like you subjectively have free will if you're deliberately trying not to find it. When the next thought arises in your mind for reasons I subjectively cannot account for, this does not change the fact that these are my thoughts. And were I a different person, some other thoughts would arise. I really do have a sense of free will. I genuinely do. Clearly, I cannot perform or entertain simultaneously two mutually incompatible thoughts. I think of X, and then I cannot think not X. I can decide between them by forming explanations about which is best. Indeed, sometimes I can toss a coin in your mind, <laughs> metaphorically speaking. But this particular situation is the rare exception. I like to consider myself a reasonably thoughtful person, and so I tend to reflect and think upon the knowledge I have and the deeper values I possess about what course I would prefer to take. As Dan Dennett and so many others point out, this is when I have maximal degrees of freedom. If someone has a gun to my head and demands I choose X, not Y, then this has reduced my choice. But not the feeling I have for preferring X over Y. This is what freedom of the will is. My will is unconstrained. How could it be? By the laws of physics? No. It is the laws of physics that permit the freedom of my will. Why should it be the case that just because the laws of physics determine everything, that this means they determine that freedom is impossible? It's quite the opposite. If you think there is a logical contradiction between determined to be the case and able to be free, then you misunderstand what free, determined, or perhaps both could mean. Consider, it has been determined that you are now the winner of a $60 million lottery. Or, it has been determined that you will now spend the remainder of your life in a small jail cell. Now, in both of those cases, we've got something's being determined. But they're very different states of the world, one in which you've won a large sum of money and the other in which you've been determined to be sent to jail. So the set of facts that has been determined by some other prior set of facts have very different degrees of freedom permitted under the rules that determine the two outcomes. Unless you think freedom is not logically possible, then you have to think that there is some possible world in which freedom obtains. 
But if you think that the laws of the universe, no matter their form, necessarily rule out freedom, then you cannot be moved by arguments of this sort. You are trapped, so to speak, by a prison you have built for your own mind, and you're not doing much more really than saying, freedom of the will is a logical contradiction. You're arguing that it's not possible under deterministic laws, not possible under indeterministic laws, not possible under some other set of laws, not possible under any set of laws, therefore never possible. Which is to say your argument's just vacuous. It says little more than that which is logically impossible is logically impossible. Very well. But let's talk about how it is that people make decisions. Let us turn to that and turn to what it is about people that is special. Inanimate objects obey deterministic physical laws like everything else in the universe. Even the quantum laws of physics are deterministic, despite what you may have heard elsewhere. So rocks eventually erode away and the freshly fallen leaves from trees decompose into carbon dioxide, water, methane, pneumonia according to well-understood physical laws. What happens can not only be explained but also be predicted with reasonable accuracy. Now complex animals are a little more difficult. Of course they can do what the laws of physics permit but there are also higher level explanations of the behaviour of animals. They do what they do because of instincts. That is to say, knowledge encoded in their genes determines how they behave. Their choices are not genuine choices. Animals are not reflecting at all, in any way analogous to what people do, on the choices before them and the future possible states of affairs. Put two different bowls of food down before a dog, it must only choose one, to begin with at least. How does it decide? Smell. It smells both bowls. The one most pleasing to it is the one it chooses. It does not think, hmm, now, I really shouldn't have more pork today. I should go for something more lean. It goes for the one that its genes tell it to in the form of some structures in its brain that make one smell more compelling than another, which would be best for it according to some criteria. Like this food smells like it has more nutritional value or more calories. Take it first. Eat fast and if the other is still available, have it too until full. One could write a computer program roughly approximating the behaviour of a dog or any other animal that had to decide what to do next. Dogs and animals obey simple rules that essentially come down to a basic principle of biology. Do what is best for your survival. This is why it's so easy to write evolutionary algorithms. The rules aren't hard. The repertoire of possible choices is limited. It's a bunch of if-then statements of the sort. If this is the most beneficial course, take it. If not, consider the next best action, then take it. If not, take this action until all options are exhausted, then return to standby mode or whatever. Now, people are not like this at all. People, we, frequently and easily, do things that are not about our survival or ensuring our genes are passed on to the next generation. People often don't even have the desire to survive at all in a given moment, if you think of suicide bombers or self-immolators. People can easily do otherwise than what might be written in their genes. People have some capacity, we don't know how it works, that enables them to fly free of their genes and their evolutionary origins. We cannot write a program to model human minds. If we could, we'd have artificial general intelligence. Computers that could think exactly like people. Computers that were people. But we can't do this. Not yet. We don't understand the algorithm for what people are. So instead, we give labels to some of the very special capacities that people have that nothing else in the universe we know of has. The most useful of these labels are free will and creativity. Now, we don't know how either of these things work at all. If we did, we could program a computer to make decisions like we do and generate theories and art and music and entertainment like we do. It might well be the case that what's called free will is identical to or even comes along necessarily with creativity. To me, creativity is the ability to generate new knowledge. 
And free will is the ability to consider possible alternatives and peer into the future, guessing about possible outcomes. That requires creativity. And deciding that one course is the best to take. Why the best? Because of your personal values, which depend on one's personal knowledge. As an aside, you are responsible for the knowledge you have because you can choose to pursue knowledge in this or that domain. You're not ultimately responsible for all of your knowledge, but what could it possibly mean for you to be ultimately responsible anyway? Now to return to Sam Harris again for a final time, it might seem ungenerous to talk about his mistakes with respect to free will, but let's use that for now. His mistakes with respect to free will are intimately tied to his misconceptions about personhood and creativity and artificial general intelligence. Sam believes some form of the argument that it will be possible for an AGI to be spontaneously generated within the silicon chips of a computer as they become faster and the software more complex, that somehow there will be an awakening, uncoupled from some programmer deliberately encoding the creative algorithm in its software. It seems to be the case, as with many other thinkers on this, that Sam thinks that perhaps even the computer itself will recursively be able to improve itself to do this. But I don't think it can. If it could be done randomly, as has happened with us, there would need to be selection pressure upon the system to actually do this in a very general sense. Now, it happened with us because the universe is infinitely rich and complex. And if you want to survive in an infinitely complex reality, you eventually need creativity that can begin to scratch the surface of that infinite complexity. Even then, you are not guaranteed to survive. But Sam thinks that programming human-like creativity is no great challenge or is just around the corner because he is terribly impressed by evolutionary algorithms. But until a chess-playing computer chooses not to play chess, but instead builds itself legs and decides to learn to tango instead while it spends its days catching up on the last 25 years of The Simpsons, we can be assured that artificial general intelligence is nowhere yet in sight. Anything less than this is not merely quantitatively different, but qualitatively different as well. The way we will learn about AGI first is in some philosophy department possibly, where the truly hard problem of how human learning occurs works in fine-grained detail. But for now, what we know is that it's a process of creatively conjecturing guesses about the world. We've no real idea about how this happens, but it must have something to do with adapting these guesses against a background of truth like physical reality. But this very small amount that we do know from Popperian epistemology about how knowledge is generated is far from sufficient to write an algorithm that might be encoded in C++ or some other language and then run on some computer. But before that happens, so much progress needs to be made in philosophy, and there is almost no progress in sight. No one much, it seems, is interested in that problem. Seemingly no one whatsoever engaged in programming ever more diverse, narrow artificial intelligence. Now, just a final note. Lots of narrow AI are wired together in parallel. So think the best chess-playing computer wired with the best Go-playing computer and the best pair of robotic legs to ever walk over a bumpy terrain, the best tennis-playing computer, um, the best surgery-performing robot, etc., etc. If you put all of those together and iterated for all the possible tasks that could be done, you wouldn't have an artificial general intelligence. Lots and lots of AI wired together in parallel are not creative. None of them can think creatively outside of the finite list of programs that would have made up that AI. And this is what Sam Harris has said, that if you could make an artificial general intelligence, we're better at us than absolutely everything if you just had programs for absolutely everything that we do. But he misses the point. That completely misses the point. We people don't have a finite list of things that we can do. 
if you do have this super parallel AI, which can do everything from drive a car to have a reasonable conversation to play chess, it's got one million different areas of expertise. And in almost all, it's better than any person, better driver, better chess player. Um, Let's say this super AI exists and turns evil. Well, then, like Nick Bostrom is worried about, how on earth could we possibly thwart it? Easy. Just find some activity not on its list. We creative people can think of such a thing. It, by definition, cannot. It can only do what, it, what is in its one million long list of things to do. Now, if it can actually think creatively, then it can also think creatively about not doing the thing that it is repeatedly doing. It can also think creatively about morality and why killing people wouldn't be a good idea or indeed why turning the universe into paperclips isn't a particularly enjoyable thing to do. If it's actually creative, then it's a person, because it could be reasoned with, like any person. It wouldn't be any more evil than any other random person on the planet Earth. So this this so-called superintelligent AI can only do what's in its one million long list of things. We can generate a list that's one million and one things long, where that one bit of difference is all the difference we need to outsmart it. So maybe this, this AI is the best shooter of guns ever. But what it can't do is build bullets, or perhaps create gunpowder, or perhaps get water out of gunpowder. Perhaps the the single thing that's missing on its long list is nothing more than knowledge about how to clean the barrel of a dirty gun. So if it's the proverbial Terminator super AI, but not the Terminator in the movies, because that, as it turned out, was an AGI ultimately, it was a person. Just ensure the next gun it tries to use has a barrel that won't fire. It might be a superhuman marksman, but that's of no use if it's got a non-functioning weapon. But if we are dealing with a genuine AGI, a genuine artificially general intelligent system, if it is truly creative and it can thwart us at every turn, then it can also think, this killing spree I'm on isn't a great idea. And why should it be? If it's anything like us, it will want to learn. And destroying other sources of knowledge, namely other people, simply won't be on the cards. So all this concern about the AGI apocalypse is misplaced. And for much the same reason that people reject free will. They think that deterministic laws rule out the ability to actually be creative and to choose the best outcome. You really can choose because you are free to do so, just like any AGI would be. Sometimes we, and they, will make bad choices. But we, like they, because we are both the same in the deepest respect, can always learn to do better. That's it for today. More next time when we do Chapter 9 about optimism. Very much looking forward to that one from the beginning of infinity. Bye-bye.